As we come to this time this morning, we want to have a time of prayer, and we want to remember those prayer requests that we have on our hearts and minds. Some of those prayer requests are not shared. They are private, so we certainly remember them. And uh, just keep uh, our church family in prayer. But we also want to remember Darlene Anderson as she continues in rehab uh, from her broken shoulder. Uh, that will be a, an extended period of time, so we want to remember Darlene and pray for her and wish her well, as well as Joe and, uh, and the rest of the family, uh, wishing them well. And then Jan Kotick, um, who continues at Josie Harper Hospice House. Uh, we had a nice conversation within the last week, um, but um, we'll continue to pray for her and her family as, as she is at that house long term and, um, and continues living there. With that, as well as our own hurts and hopes, we offer our morning prayer for today. We come into this house this day. Oh God, because we are desperate for you. We come because you are the air that we breathe. We seek your presence, and that presence is life-giving to us. We come seeking your word, which is the bread that we eat. We desire to hear from you and want to know your guidance for our life, know uh, some reassurance for the times that we're going through. And so, God, we come to this place at this time to worship you. We are thankful for this house of worship that you established some 160 plus years ago and uh, has been faithful to serve you in Omaha and beyond. And we pray that you would continue to uh, use this church as a beacon of light for Omaha and beyond. May we be faithful to the gospel. May we be faithful to uh, love you and to serve you and to be the people that you are calling us to be. May we be open to your guidance and direction for us. And may we not shy away from the difficult parts of our faith, uh, things like sacrifice and suffering that sometimes seem all too foreign to us as the church in America. God, our hearts are broken for those that are suffering this day. We think of those in Thailand who have lost relatives, those who have lost life or have been injured by the attack in, uh, in Thailand over the last day or two. We pray for those that continue to struggle and deal with the coronavirus, uh, be they on a, um, a cruise ship or in China, or if they are in our own backyard at Camp Ashland. We pray for those that are in quarantine and, and pray for their spirits. We pray that the, the doctors are doing whatever they can to help fight that virus and to get it under control. We pray for people throughout the world, God, who, who struggle with uh, having adequate food and drinking water and medicines and shelter. We pray for those who are held against their will and, and those that are oppressed. We pray for those who are trafficked and used like a commodity. And we pray, God, for an end to these systems 
And we know that that means that we will have to stand up as your Christians, as your men and women of faith in Omaha and beyond to help be your, stand for your word and stand for truth. So we pray, God, that we would do that. God, we pray for those on our prayer list, and we lift up those names that we've mentioned already. We lift up uh, those who continue to struggle with, with uh, day in and day out uh, difficulties, uh, including uh, cancer, battling uh, cancer day in and day out, including uh, those that are dealing with significant illnesses that, that uh, are weighing them down. And God, we pray for those who mourn this day. We pray that your spirit would be with them and give them comfort, guidance, and grace this day. Now, God, we do pray for our time of worship. We pray for all of us that we would give ourselves willingly to serve you and to worship you this day. We pray that we would come away from this time changed and changed for the better, changed for good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our scripture this morning is out of the book of Luke, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. Luke 14, verses 25 to 33. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, Everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace." In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. (coughs) It seems that two young brothers were waiting for breakfast one Saturday morning. Their mother was finishing up some pancakes, and the boys were arguing pretty loudly about who was going to get the first pancake. Well, the mother saw this as a teaching moment, so she spoke to the boys and said, if Jesus were sitting here, you know that he would say, let my brother have the first one. I'll wait. Well, the older brother immediately turned to the younger one and said, okay, you be Jesus. Then, from a few years back now on America's Funniest Videos, there was a clip from Japan showing a brother and sister walking down the street. 
and they were coming up on a break in the sidewalk. Maybe you remember seeing this clip. This break in the concrete was a long step across, and the gap was about two feet deep. Well, the boy made it across pretty easily, but his sister was afraid, and she refused to even try to get over that gap. After several attempts to try to convince her that she could make it, the brother ended up stretching out his own body across that gap, using himself as kind of a human bridge so that his sister could get across. And she did safely crawl over her brother safely to the other side of the break in the concrete. When we think of sacrifice, many thoughts come to mind. Some situations seem funny and almost trivial, like the story of the hungry brothers. Other situations are touching and show how much one person loves another. This morning, we're continuing our New Year's a study of letters to the church. And here we look at chapter 6 where Francis Chan is discussing suffering and sacrifice. We don't like to think about those, to, those topics very much or even discuss those topics. We'd rather focus on fun things, more fun things like love and grace or forgiveness or mercy. Yet Chan claims that there are millions of people who have been taught that they can believe in Jesus and become a Christian, and it won't cost them anything. In fact, some preaching and teaching today focuses on the blessings a believer can receive by following Jesus, more of a prosperity gospel approach. There are some who preach that their life will get better if you will just say a prayer and accept Jesus into your heart. But interestingly, Jesus taught the exact opposite of that. Jesus never said that following after him would be easy. He never promised abundance and wealth. He was very honest to say that following him demands our all. The call is to follow Jesus and die. It is costly to follow Jesus. Actually, if our faith doesn't cost us anything, it isn't worth much. An American pastor even goes so far as to say, if following Jesus Christ doesn't cost you anything, it's because you've bought into American Christianity. As Chan says, the essence of becoming a Christian is complete and total surrender of your own desires and flesh to the higher purpose of serving God's glory. The call to follow Jesus is the call to joyfully endure suffering in this life for the promise of eternal blessing in the next. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that you are blessed when people persecute you and say false things about you. In Matthew 24, Jesus is teaching about the future, and he warns his disciples to be alert for false teaching. And he warns them about the persecution and the trials that they will face. Well, was that talk only for disciples of the first century? Or the people that lived around Jesus and interacted with him? No, it it wasn't. Yes, there is suffering mentioned all throughout our New Testament. But somehow the modern day church, especially the church in America, has forgotten what that means 
And we've lost the impact of what it means to suffer for our faith. So it's like the concept of suffering for our faith is a lost part of our Christianity. And Chan wonders if that warped view of Christianity has contributed to the state of our churches. Could that in part explain why the church is so ineffective in its work? He goes on to give a couple, several examples of Christians and churches in other cultures who willingly acknowledge the fact that once they proclaim the gospel, they will face suffering and hardship. They will likely be rejected because of their faith. They could be beaten or even go to jail for their faith. But lest you think that those stories are random examples designed to help sell books, I heard a similar story at last year's Prairie Pastors Conference in Omaha. Eli Hadid is a representative of the Arab Baptist Theological Seminary in Lebanon. He told us about their work in that area of the world and how the students are living out their faith each and every day. As you may know, the majority of the people in that country are Muslim. And Hadid says that their work of evangelizing Muslims has been very difficult. That's because when a Muslim converts to Christianity, he loses everything. His identity, his family, his community, everything. That's much more difficult than the sacrifice we make walking down the aisle to join First Baptist Church. Instead, Hadid says that their goal for Muslims is that they commit to follow Jesus and his teaching. And if they will do that, that makes all the difference. Hadid says that they're using, as, as their example for their motivation, they're using the story of the Samaritan woman as an, as an example for their work. Hadid also says that when G Christ is preached in Lebanon, their students are arrested and sent to prison. When this happens, they call the school and say that they just won't be in class for a little while. And they know what that means. The administration knows what that means. And the students are generally happy to do this because they have read of this kind of treatment in the Bible. Their experiences aren't considered a hardship or an inconvenience, but they are a part of, part of having faith in Jesus. Suffering is expected, and it's kind of a sort of badge of honor. Hadid said that the students are learning the theology of the cross and are shunning the prosperity gospel that is so prevalent, particularly in the United States. The students don't think of themselves as victims, but at the center of what God is doing. When a local pastor asked how we could help the church in Lebanon, Hadid appreciated the question and say that we could certainly pray for them, but he also kind of smiled and said that the students in Lebanon are praying for the church in the West. Their feeling is that the enemy is in the church. People in the Western church, in their view, want to be comfortable, and it's more like they are asleep to what God is doing and how God is trying to lead them. So the seminary students there are praying for us. <clears throat> the Christians in Lebanon and other countries are willing to suffer and make sacrifices for their faith. And that type of faith sounds kind of scary to us. But it also sounds like those Christians are alive. 
It sounds like they are surrendering their all for Jesus and living a life that pleases Jesus. And because of their commitment, their churches are on the move. God is using them to reach people and to change the world. So, where does all of that leave us? Do we continue in our seemingly non-committal approach to faith? Or is there something we can do to embrace more a theology of the cross? Chan says that a part of embracing suffering and sacrifice might be for us to look for ways to stand up for our faith. He speaks of how in recent years Christians have a greater awareness of other people's thoughts and feelings. Instead of being judgmental and biased, we have been sensitized and conditioned to accept each other's thoughts and feelings, no matter what they are. And to a great extent, of course, it's good to be tolerant of one another. But as Chan points out, our society has gone so far in being understanding and accepting of another person's feelings that we've forgotten about God's thoughts and feelings. And we've elevated another human being's thoughts and feelings above those of God. So in many cases, we've lost sight of the truth. Chan says that true compassion not only takes into account how a person feels today, but also how that person is going to feel on judgment day. He acknowledges that we all want to be accepted and approved, so we listen to others and we coddle them, but we've refused to be critical or disapproving. And if that approach is what love is all about, then you can look back and say that the prophets, the apostles, and Jesus were the most unloving people to ever walk on the face of the earth. As students of the Bible, we have to remember the harsh words that the prophets had for those who had turned away from God. And we have to remember how Jesus and then the disciples rebuked the religious leaders of their day. They weren't just going along with the flow of what people wanted to do. They weren't non-committal in standing for the truth, but they stood up for what was right, what God's truth was. As you read the Gospels, it seems like Jesus was always calling out the Pharisees. And when Jesus visits the temple, he's the one who calls out the money changers. I think that we can remember uh, most all of those instances. But as Chan points out, it's Jesus who was the only one to ever confront those two groups. No one else stood up to them or seemed to be upset at their leadership. That would seem to say that the people of that day were accustomed to what the people were doing. They were used to it, and they either tolerated it or they didn't notice what was going on. So that begs the question, what are we letting slide in the church that we shouldn't be? And what sin or selfish attitude are we tolerating in the church or even in our society because we don't want to make waves? Now, answering those questions doesn't mean that you just go blast away at anyone you think is wrong or blast away at a situation that you don't think is right. You have to be gentle and considerate in dealing with people. You have to have a tender heart and you have to know your Bible. 
You need to realize, as the old expression goes, that when you point your finger at someone else, for the one finger that's pointing out, you have three more that are pointing back at yourself. The bottom line is that we need to treat one another with love. And that's the example of Jesus. Speaking the truth in love and loving someone so so much that you risk being rejected by them. So if we take this teaching to heart, what is the cure for the non-committal Christian? How do we change our attitude of neglect and more fully embrace suffering and sacrifice as an expected part of our faith? Well, first of all, we have to continue to learn how to treasure Jesus and value him above all else. Too often we say that we want to love and serve Jesus but really that means we want to love and serve Jesus on our own terms. We want Jesus, but we want a lot of things in life. So we place the good news of Jesus on the same plane as, hey, I got a new job the other day, or my husband and I are gonna have a baby, or my team won the sports championship. And Chan says that when worldly good news stirs more emotion, then the good news of God becoming flesh and dying for our sins, then that's got to be insulting to God. So we need to more fully consider just what God has done in sending Jesus to us. Dwell on that, reflect on that, and pray over it until it sinks down into your soul. The gift of God for us ought to have us fall on our face in worship and fall in love with Jesus so that it's actually a joy and a privilege to give our life back to him in return for all that he's done for us. Secondly, if we're willing to embrace suffering and sacrifice, it must be motivated by love. That's the example that we see in God sending his son to earth on our behalf. And it's the example of Jesus laying down his life for us. God wants us to love other people so much that we are broken over their lostness and willing to sacrifice our life to bring the gospel to them. We suffer because we love people and even love our enemies. Chan uses this analogy to help clarify. He says that he has friends who have adopted children because they wanted children. And he has other friends who have adopted children because they loved children. And there's a big difference between those two. He has also had friends who love so well that they have adopted children with special needs or troubled children out of the foster system. And those decisions can wreak havoc on a family. And, Chan, and as Chan asks couples why they do this, the answer sounds pretty much like this. We don't think so much about how much we will suffer if we take her in. We think about how much she will suffer if we don't. It's much easier to be non-committal in your faith. It's easier to focus on the good things that our faith offers and shy away from the demand of suffering and sacrifice. But real, authentic love demands something of us, 
and it will lead us into suffering. And so the committed Christian expects for there to be suffering in life. We are willing to face suffering and we can rejoice in the midst of that because our hope and faith are in the God of the universe. God is our rock and our strength and he will lead us through our trials and to eternal life. That is our hope. Now while we might now be more accepting of suffering, we have to be careful about how we live that out. We don't ever pursue suffering for suffering's sake, nor do we seek out suffering because we think it will somehow help us gain some sort of greater spirituality. As always, our goal is to pursue Jesus and follow him as closely as we can. And when we do that, we know that suffering will come our way. So let us not be some non-committal Christian who isn't really dedicated to faith, but let us be fixated on Jesus and obsessed with him, fully committed to knowing and following Jesus, no matter what it takes and no matter what comes.